Hello, Podmates. Howie Severino here with another brilliant guest. The journalist Sheila Coronel, who is also a longtime professor and former dean at the Columbia University School of Journalism in New York. She practiced journalism for many years in the Philippines and began her career during the Marcos regime in the 1980s. She covered his ouster in 1986 and has some keen reflections on a possible return of the Marcos to power in 2022. But before anything else, a disclosure. Sheila and I have been colleagues since the late 1980s at the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism, where we both sit on the board. Sheila, good morning to you in New York. Magandang umaga. It's evening here in Quezon City. Kamusta ka na? Okay naman. Good, good morning, Howie. It's a beautiful <laughs> spring morning here in New York. Oh, oh, dito naman, no? Uh, napakainit na. Uh, you're in New York, no? Manhattan. No? Uh, at one point uh, during the epidemic, parang yung New York naging epicenter ng, ng pandemic, no? Pero ngayon, may in-person classes na kayo. You know, you're a professor, teaches graduate students yan sa Colombia. Nauna pa kayo sa Pilipinas, no? Ang feeling ba dyan, the worst of the pandemic is over? I think most people are feeling that the worst is over. We're now teaching unmasked. We used to mm -hmm. teach with masks and six feet apart. But two years ago, you know, New York was a ghost town. I mostly stayed in my apartment. We go out to the park, but but it was dangerous to be in 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 groups. We wore masks all the time. I could hear sirens 24 hours. I live near a hospital. Mm -hmm. And so people were just being brought. There was a field hospital two, two blocks away from where I live because there were just not enough hospital beds to take everyone. Even in Central Park, there was a field hospital. It was very, very eerie. It was like a ghost town, but that's changed. Norm normally it's back to normal. Theaters are open. Broadway is back, Times Square is crowded, um, people are in churches, theaters, restaurants, bars. It's mm. especially now that the weather is nice. Yes, oh, oh, that's it's good. wonderful. That's good. But uh, we, we have to say, though, that uh, New York is not known as like a conservative anti-vax part of America. No, I mean, people there believe in, in vaccines and uh, I guess most people there are vaccinated, boosted pa nga siguro, no? Yeah, that's one reason that um, we're pretty confident because everybody has had boosters. Even mm -hmm. even children have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I think they started vaccinating children below 12, I think 5 to 12 um, some weeks ago. So yeah, there, that's why even grade schools, kindergartens, they're all open now because, because of vaccinations. Mm -hmm. yeah. Widespread vaccination. Okay, uh, yung mga students mo, no, you're meeting them face-to-face uh, -face already. No? Uh, you have an international student body sa Colombia, especially the journalism school. I know uh, Filipinos have gone there. Pero ang karamihan ng estudyante mo, Americano. So how, how often does the Philippines come up in class there and usually in, in what context? Well, the truth is that it, it rarely comes up unless I bring it up because most of the time Philippines is not in, in the radar. First, it was the Middle East, Afghanistan, and now it's Ukraine. So mm -hmm. the interest on Southeast Asia for a time, it was Burma. But the Philippines before, before Duterte was seen as kind of a normal country. Then, of course, interest mm -hmm. mounted after Duterte. And, mm -hmm. and now with the possibility of the markets is coming back, I think the Philippines is seen as one of many countries where there's going to be some sort of autocratic, I mean, it was already during the mm -hmm. but with the Marcos is coming back, I think there's concerns about 
the return of autocracy and all of that. Mm. You teach journalism, no? And uh, the bulk of your journalism career was in the Philippines. No? And a new main lesson from Philippine journalism that that you often share when you're asked there, I'm not just in your class, but I know you're a, you're a frequent speaker to mga iba't ibang audience. No? Well, really, the lesson is the uh, the power of watchdog journalism, of holding of investigative journalism in terms of holding power to account that the press is a very important institution in society, not just for providing information to to citizens, looking at public records, looking at documents, interviewing people, looking at data, going out to the field and reporting. It's the, the same toolkit that, that's applicable most, most anywhere else. But I think what's important is the ethos of watchdog journalism. That's hard to teach, but you can show it by examples or the examples of your my own work or the work of others and, and the persistence and the, and the, and the innovativeness of, of finding information um, in um, in multiple sources. Well, speaking of which, because uh, one of your career highlights in the Philippines was the reportage that you led in exposing the corruption during the Arab uh, Estrada presidency. You know, in the in the nineties, you know, the notorious uh, Arab mansions, you know, the lifestyle, uh, the mistresses, etc. That led to, you know, formal investigations, uh, impeachment. Eventually, um, President Arab was removed from power. He was jailed. Uh, journalists like you were, you know, were hailed as uh, as, as heroes, as uh, people who who made a, a huge impact on society. You won the Magsaysay Award a couple of years later, no, in partially in recognition of that. In other words, in the Philippines, then the democratic system worked. No, my my checks and balances. Um, journalists spoke truth to power. Political leaders were made accountable. It, it seemed like a new era, no? But but now looking back on it, parang that era was short-lived, no? So what happened? No? What happened to accountability in, in the Philippines? What what made that particular era, first of all, an era of accountability? Uh, what what made you know journalists like you uh, so uh, influential back then? I think that was the era after people power, the first people power after 1986, when the controls on the press were loosened, and the and and because of the the anti the role of the anti marcos press in the democracy movement, there was a lot of prestige in being in being a journalist, and that's not unique to the Philippines. That's that's true in many countries in the late 80s, in the 1990s, up to about the early 2000s. When when uh, the media was seen as a kind of uh, what do you call it a um, helping birth democracy mm-hmm. and being there and helping just by covering the democracy movement and the abuses of power, helping it was like a midwife of democracy in many countries and so that prestige lingered. I saw that not just in the Philippines. I saw that in Indonesia after 1998 in Thailand also after the fall of the one of the military. So many military regimes in Thailand, mm-hmm. but some, sometime in in 1992, when when democracy was uh, was reestablished, and certainly in South Africa that was the case. So there was there was really a wide respect for for the media then, and the media was able, and journalists were able to institute to expose corruption and make reforms possible. That's still possible now, but since then there's really been a backlash, and a lot of the backlash has been by strong men, by anti-democratic elites, or what you call illiberal elites, 
who are against the accountability institutions of democracy, not just the press, independent courts, um, ombudsmen, uh, civil society. So there's really been a backlash against those holding power to account by the rise of illiberal elites that have taken advantage and have ridden on a tide again of popular questioning about what has democracy really given us mm -hmm. except the freedom to speak out. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of these new political parties, a lot of new individuals coming to power by riding on popular dissatisfaction about democracy and this international liberal order that has really failed to deliver in terms of making people's, people's lives better. So you know, in contrast no, uh, between that era and today, but you know, despite what you said, no, uh, there's been a lot of good reportage no, in, in recent years, uh, especially in exposing the large numbers of killings and, and not just corruption you know i mean journalists from all over the world have come to the philippines to they were not prevented uh from documenting and 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 reporting you know but the president is as popular as ever no actually if you compare it to what's going on today ano ba naman yung mansions i mean you know we, we didn't we weren't reporting thousands of people being killed no i mean people were just stealing money you know i don't want to downplay that but still uh, we we did no one accused Arab of having a lot of people killed diba so parang the scale of what's going on today seems to dwarf what happened in the 90s and yet there seemed to be more accountability uh, back then you know so what happened no what happened uh, sabi mo nga this is a this is a Kind of a global uh, pattern, no, of autocrats, no. Now, parang yun yana demonize tayo. Did this coincide, for example, with the internet? In a way, in a way, it did, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, journalists used to have a monopoly of the audience; they no longer did, mm -hmm. and there's good and bad there. But yes, the internet, where everybody can now can basically be there, be a journalist, and publish good and bad information. Yes, the fragmentation of the information space, the rise of social media definitely has diminished the power and credibility of journalists. And a lot of illiberal politicians have ridden on that, have used um, social media in order to delegitimize and demonize what professional fact gathering, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, they're now saying, you know, everybody has their own truth and that journalists cannot be trusted because their only agenda is to make money or they're in the pay mm -hmm. of certain political factions. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, certainly social media has a lot to do with that. But I, I don't think it's just social media. I think a lot of it stems from the frustration of a lot of um not just poor people, but a lot of people who are literate, who use social media, frustration in the world, especially in the Philippines, where the prospects for advancement are very limited. And so when, when Duterte says the problem is crime, it's criminals, he's funneling that frustration and channeling it into hatred against criminals and, and drug addicts and justifying their killings. So there he's like providing some sort of a way to vent their anger and frustration against the system by channeling it to anger and anger against crime and mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there are very there there are many different variations of that in Europe. It's channeling it against immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially immigrants of color. Here in the U.S., certainly, it's channeling it against people of color and blaming them for why they uh, this sort of dissatisfaction. With the, with the limited 
with, with you know falling incomes, demographic change, with an, an environment that's causing more natural disasters. So you you classic way in which autocrats come to power is by othering a certain segment of the society, Jews, blacks, immigrants, gays, all of that, and channeling people's anger so that people have something to blame other than a very unjust social and economic system. But at the same time, no, parang the audience these days or, or the voters uh, uh, even uh, seem to be so m- more tolerant of scandalous behavior on the part of leaders. I mean, just lang sa US, no? I recall when um, Donald Trump was running for president, there was this tape where he was really speaking about molesting women. No? There was a lot of misogyny in his language, etc. And dito naman sa, sa Pilipinas, if you recall, I mean, when when President, uh, when candidate Duterte uh, was was running, he was making rape jokes. Uh, pero, you know, they, they won anyway. No? So, parang Nagbago, rin yung, nagbago ba yung values ng mga tao because of the social media or the internet or what used to disqualify candidates in, in past elections and, or campaigns uh, you know, were, were, are no longer enough to disqualify them today? So actually, misogyny is part of the strongman syndrome. Part of the attraction of the strongman is this mm-hmm. projection of male virility. Mm-hmm. And, and so people who've studied this, you know, this is not new during the time of Mussolini, during the time of Hitler, there was a lot of misogyny too, and a lot of, you know, putting down of women. And they say usually strong men arise at a time when women's rights are advancing. This was the case in the 1920s and the 1930s. This is certainly the case in many parts of the world from the 1960s. So there is like a backlash against feminism, against the assertion of, of, of women and a lot of men feel very insecure and they are art- actually <laughs> articulating a lot of the male what they call here the male fragility strong men are articulating that you know by being out against lesbians by come and and gays by uh, and trans people and by uh, putting down women they are actually giving vent to this insecure masculinity this fragile masculinity especially in an economic order where the skills of women are more prized. You know, women get more jobs in the service sector. You know, the brawny male jobs, manufacturing has declined. So the decline of male power, they are articulating that, that insecurity about the decline of male power. And this is why they're popular, even among women. You know, I wanted to ask, no? I mean, doesn't that kind of behavior and language alienate like half of the voting population? who are women or is this kind of abused women syndrome by on <laughs> nah. it's, it's abuse it, in a sense it's abuse women syndrome but also male power is very attractive it's very seductive and that's what they're riding on i mean when i'm watching the duterte videos and when he's kissing a woman in an audience mm-hmm. and all the women there are watching they're applauding him I think it's this assertion of male power. It, it, it can be attractive to, to certain people. It puts certain people off. But, but, but in, in certain societies, we're still patriarchies, Catholic tradition and all of that. In patriarchal mm-hmm. societies, that's still seen as, as a sign of power. It's not seen as something icky or um, it does to us, mm-hmm. you know something how do you call it indecent but it's mm-hmm. 
male virility is is still prized. I mean, you go anywhere. I mean, this Marcos was seen as a virile. You know, the medals, the strutting around with doobie beams. You know, when when <laughs> you know the, when when the UP. You know, when people were playing the doobie beams yeah, and Marcos on the, on the speaker, Marcos singing Pamolina. When how do you think that played in Ilocos? That <laughs> that that didn't seem funny or you know to Ilocanos and they're saying wow he's singing Pamulina went to an Americana actress <laughs> in bed right <laughs> that wasn't seen as as uh, or funny or it's seen as macho wow yeah, it's yeah. conquering a white woman I want to talk, ask you about you know this this blockbuster lecture you gave a few weeks ago you know the, the Adrian Cristobal memorial lecture where you presented a broad uh, sweep of history, you know, as the as a context of our current uh, politics, going all the way back uh, to before World War II, when uh, Ferdinand Marcos Senior was accused of killing his father, Mariano Marcos's political rival, Julio Nalundasan. No? So, uh, so Ferdinand Marcos was acquitted by the Supreme Court, and that created a legend that even mesmerized, uh, sabi mo nga, your father. The famous criminal defense lawyer Antonio Coronel. No? So you narrated this this history, you know, as as a way of of explaining where we are today. So please, in a nutshell, <laughs> how how does that history explain where we are today with Marcos Jr. now leading the polls and perhaps on the cusp of the presidency? A lot of people are saying that the reason Marcos Jr. is leading is because of all the social media, this information, the YouTube videos, the TikTok. Mm-hmm influencers and all of that and I just wanted to give it a historical perspective because I grew up with a lot of Marcos in my life right because mm-hmm. you know um, most of my life uh, when at least that you know it was Marcos for president and and I know because my father is Ilocano that the Marcoses have a long history so I wanted to dig into the whole myth of Marcos, because when I was growing up, we had all these Marcos books at home for mm-hmm. every tier of victory. We mm-hmm. had like three or four copies, various editions of that. Mm-hmm. And the commission biography. Uh-huh. The and the commission by bi- it was a commission biography of mm-hmm. Marcos that start that like by an American basically huh? by an American journalist that mm-hmm. basically packaged the Marcos myth. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, you know, this goes back a long, long way. And when I read all of these books, really. The myth-making starts with Mariano Marcos and how he was a nationalist, worked with Aglipay. And then with, with the 18-year-old Marcos accused the of murder, the son, uh, uh, yeah, Ferdinand, uh, accused of murder, and then defending himself in an all-white suit to prove hmm, his Shark skin. <laughs> yeah, all-white shark skin suit and acquitting himself mm-hmm. and writing like a 200-page brief uh, and defending himself and his family's honor and getting away with it mm-hmm. in the Supreme Court and topping the bar before that, right? Mm-hmm. And and so how can it not be legendary? I mean, the whole of Ilocos, the whole of the country, it was a trial that was covered by the press at that time. And where Marcos was, instead of being seen as a murderer, was seen as a hero. How he turned around that narrative of being an accused murderer to being, you know, a hero who was innocent while at the same time defending his family honor is was I thought wow for at that time he was because the trial took some time was been about 21 22 mm-hmm. when he defended himself in the supreme court that was mm-hmm. that was quite amazing 
and and of course uh, it also had something to do with his being uh, from the Ilocos which at that time was was considered a backwater no people were moving out of Ilocos and migrating because it was so so difficult to live there etc and here you have this this guy who you know who rose from from that and um, you know eventually became president so you know it was the stuff of legend <laughs> it was yeah he was he was from the beginning a hero right he was seen as an ilocano hero and not just an ilocano hero but a filipino hero and this is how he built this myth of his heroism from the nolandasan case to the second world war where all these manufactured medals and this anting anting myth myth you know, he was supposed, Aglipa was supposed to have passed on his anting anting, and that Aglipa himself, before, before Bataan, made an incision on Marcos's back, implanted the anting anting there, and that mm. saved Marcos's life, where he fought heroically in Bataan, and he, he could appear and reappear at will, he could resurrect the dead. So that myth making, in, which we see still now, you know, the Marcos Gold, the Amashita, and all of that started. Mm started then even before we became an independent country well, so when you say myth Philippine independence yeah so when you say myth making basically it's falsehoods diba parang fake news yan disinformation that's another way of it ang ang nag-iba lang yung technology diba now, now we're talking about you you mentioned troll farms you know and all these you know social media influencers spreading this this uh, stuff but ang sinasabi mo noon pa nangyayari na yan uh, wala lang internet you had these books, you had the, you know, the, the scholars who were hired to kind of... No, there were these movies, remember? Iginuhit okay. sa Tadhana. I grew up watching endless reruns of Iginuhit mm -hmm. ng Tadhana, which is the Marcos biopic with Luis Gonzalez and Gloria mm -hmm. Romero. Mm -hmm. So even as he was, you know, dipping into folklore, he was also using these new tactics, you know, mm -hmm. madmen. This was the madman era, remember? Mm -hmm. He introduced these madman tactics, you know, advertising, movies, Hollywood, a touch of glamour. Remember, they were our Camelot, right? They were mm -hmm. the John Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy, the beautiful couple. They repackaged mm -hmm. themselves as that, not just for the Filipino audience, but for mm -hmm. the US audience by That's tapping right. into the tropes that the American audience knows, you know, is familiar with. Yo, so, so, yun nga, nagkaroon ng ganitong klaseng mythology, you know? And of course, they, they created institutions to, to keep themselves in power indefinitely. You know, martial law, uh, you know, canceled elections, uh, and uh, you know they gave themselves this image of uh, invincibility, diba? but despite all of that, diba? I mean they, they were still ousted from power, no? Uh, in 1986, uh, of course through their own blunders, uh, you know Nino Aquino was killed on the tarmac uh, in their in the custody of the government, etc. But you know you started your lecture with this image of being at Ma in Ma uh, at Malacanang in 1986, no? Right after the Marcoses fled. And uh, there was chaos, and then you know you saw all these documents that were ripped, and it magulo, no? Well, first, why were you confident then that it would, it would be the end, despite the fact that you know not, they built this huge infrastructure to keep themselves in power and 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 possibly even you know come back, no? But why did you think then it was the end of the Marcoses? And then the corollary question there is: When did you realize that maybe it was not the end? I guess the emotion of that moment. Mm. Marcuses have fled after so many years, made you believe that it was that era was over because they were literally no longer in the country. Mm -hmm. They were far away. They were in Hawaii. There were cases against them. 
um, it was it didn't look like they were going to come back. And when Marcos died in 1989, I thought, you know, that was the end. I've always thought Imelda was just a crazy character. And and I really, for me, psychologically, and even now, this is why I don't want to talk about them. I wanted to put that chapter behind because they had been so much a part of my growing up. It was it was it was like when you have a traumatic experience, mm -hmm. you just want to forget it, right? You just you just want to move on. And I thought even when a lot of the U.S. press was interviewing Imelda when she came back. And I thought they're just doing that because Imelda is the most familiar figure. <laughs> Filipinos have moved on. We're, we're in a new era. There's a new generation here that no longer has a memory of Marcos. And I really desperately wanted to believe that. Even when, you know, I should have known in 1989, the Marcos loyalists were helping Gringo in the coup in 1989. Mm. And then Imelda came back and ran for the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the Romaldeses were back in power again. I still thought they were marginal. And, and even when Bong Bong nearly won the vice presidency and lost, I still thought certainly we're, behind, we're beyond that. And it was really only lately when I saw his poll numbers that I, I really seriously thought they were going, going to, to make a comeback. I think a lot of it was wishful thinking on my part. And it's on the part yeah. of many others of my mm -hmm. generation. There were a lot of uh, discerning people like yourselves who were blindsided by the sudden popularity. Parang daming nangyari, like below the radar or, or everyone's radar. And then all of a sudden, parang he has a chance to to actually become president. Because <laughs> he, you know, he, he was keeping a low profile at least among you know at least in in mainstream media you know for the last several years you no know? uh, so di, di, di natin napansin no na nandiyan na pala no what they were actually doing was building an an alternate media ecosystem based on mm -hmm. youtube facebook mm -hmm. even here in the us there's a lot of facebook groups youtube especially that was rewriting rewriting history again it's classic marcos right they've been mm -hmm. rewriting history all this time and trying to make a comeback. We didn't realize how seriously they intended to come back to power. You know, I just thought, you know, they'd be satisfied with being in the Senate, with mm. their wealth not being not being touched. But yes, yeah, seriously, they really want to get back the presidency mm. that they believe had been stolen from them. In a way, it's like the Nalon Dasan thing all over again. You know, I have to avenge my I have to avenge my father. I have to get back and redeem the family honor. I think Bong Bong thinks of it that way and to them it's a heroic narrative and a heroic narrative that maybe they're selling to to their constituents so it, it's this is personality based in the ito yung ano, there's no higher purpose uh, involved no unity <laughs> no it's it's not that i think they are trying to make themselves look harmless and normal we're just another political mm -hmm. family not a family that plundered the country and caused the deaths and torture and of so many. So what they're trying to do is to normalize themselves. That's what the Marcuses are trying to do. You know, well, look, Bong Bong in his videos, you see, I'm with he's with his family. He's he looks like any ordinary person, but he is not. He is the heir of a kleptocracy. His campaign, all of that is still funded by wealth that was stolen from the people. He has not acknowledged any wrongdoing. He has not apologized. There is no promise of restitution. Instead, he says, 
I am reasserting my family's right to the presidency that was taken from us by people power. Well, you you mentioned no uh, that he he and his camp uh, created this alternative media infrastructure. No, I mean of course we're talking about uh, uh, Facebook, YouTube, uh, maybe to great extent TikTok as well. No, uh, well he's and- also radio commentators. Okay. The newspaper columnists who are for him. Mm-hmm. But without this new media, because uh, we know that, um, you know, this, I know this has been talked about a lot in, in, in forums and conferences, etc. But without all of this, uh, do you think we'd be in this situation where, you know, the Marcuses would actually be, you know, on the verge of, of this kind of return? Kunyare, uh, if, 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 if media was still, the media environment was still the 1990s, Panahoni FBR, Panahoni era. Where sabi mo nga, uh, you know, the traditional journalists, jur- investigative journalists, were you know still had prestige and you know won these kinds of awards, etc., and had this impact. Would would we be in this situation? It's it's possible because mm-hmm. the the situation in the 80s and the 90s was different, not just because of the media. I think there's a tendency to blame media for everything. You know, cell phones. <laughs> contributed to Arab's ouster and all of that. It's really much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. I, I think they, if, if there was no social media, they would have set up their own newspapers, their own radio mm-hmm. stations, bought their own TV stations. It would have been much the same thing, but the spread of this information wouldn't have been as, um, how do you call it, as fast. Would they be able to get away with so much fake news, right? But I think what they're riding on is a kind of nostalgia for an era where it was so long ago, just as this nostalgia for Stalin in, in Russia, mm-hmm. when things were stable and orderly. And again, this is their appeal. You know, what does Marcos stand for? Order, discipline, et cetera, et cetera, right? At least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in a world where everything's changing so fast, but there's so much technology or there's so much confusion, what they're, it is the traditional conservative appeal, right? Um, standing for order, discipline, stability, which is also Duterte's appeal. And that will have some appeal among the electorate. I don't know how appealing it's going to be, but that's their appeal. When he says unity, he basically means there's so much chaos, right? There's so much, I want to bring mm-hmm. back much more mm-hmm. order and let's not fight with each other, et cetera, et cetera. Because he really has no platform except to make the Marcoses, get the Marcoses back in power. Some old timers from from martial law days, uh, well, the ones who were not uh, jailed or or victimized, no? say the threats to press freedom today are exaggerated because journal- journalists today, Namandao, are are not getting jailed. No, uh, what do you is the state of press freedom in the Philippines? What are the threats, if if there are any? It's no longer the withdrawal of inform- the withholding of information, no longer censorship, as it was during Marcos's time when there were literally censors sitting in these rooms and saying you cannot do this because it was a very controlled media environment. It's no longer controlling mm-hmm. the flow of information, but flooding in the flooding the information space with so much disinformation and untruth and propaganda so that people are no longer able to discern what is, what is fact and what is not. So it's a completely opposite thing. It's not control mm-hmm. through restriction, but control through a deluge of information. And it's not just, it's, it's not just Duterte or Marcos doing that. I mean, Trump does that. All the liberal mm-hmm. elites all around Putin does that too. Although Putin also exerts a certain amount of control. 
so there's there's that and that has been that has been quite effective um you know having influencers bloggers facebook fake facebook accounts fake twitter accounts tiktok influencers and so on so that journalists us we are drowned out in that in that deluge and of course for though there's still the cyber libel law there's still the anti-terror law which can be used when things go so far there's still there's still the gun in the holster that they can wield and that creates mm -hmm. real intimidation plus the intimidation of media owners right so mm -hmm. the mainstream media is unable to compete already in this information space but it's really unable to use all its guns in this information war because the media mm -hmm. owners are very wary and very cautious mm -hmm. well speaking of you know in this information war no because um, the the situation now makes it seem like you know filipinos have not learned uh from history you know and then we're allowing you know mistakes to to repeat etc no but you know we we've seen quite a bit of effort to memorialize what happened uh, during martial martial law there are you know monuments there are you know speakers there are shows uh, you know we've all, we've done stories pcij has, has done stories uh, you know survivors survivors victims have been interviewed a lot Parang, and yet, parang this this has all of this gone over people's heads. Uh, ano, ano it, it, it didn't. Uh, okay, there's this alternative universe, but at the same time, there is also this factual universe, no? But it seems like uh, a lot of people have ignored it, no? So, ganun ba ka kalakas na yung yung alternative universe of information that's that's full of falsehood and medyo this this other universe. That's full of facts and what really happened in our history. That's just as being dwarfed by by this deluge. Nasinasabi mo. Ganon ba yung situation natin ngayon? In a way, but I don't think people are that stupid or that easily manipulable. I don't mm -hmm. think uh, social media social media works both ways. I mean, we've seen the rallies for the opposition getting bigger and bigger. That means that some truth is getting through. And that the same tools that the disinformation armies are using, not meaning using disinformation, but using Facebook to Facebook and Twitter and TikTok to engage citizens, the same tools can be used to counter that disinformation flow. I don't by any means think that this is a one-way thing. This is a two-way conversation. Mm -hmm. People are not so easily fooled. But what is needed, especially as the memories of the Marcos era start to fade, is constant memorializing and remembering. And it has been to be drilled from childhood. You know, like in, in Berlin, for example, you walk around, there'll be a marker in a bus station that says, in this bus station, Jews were abducted and brought to concentration camp. Mm -hmm. Outside Humboldt University in, in Berlin, there are markers on, on, the, on the paving, on the, on the bricks, on the, on the road that say this Jewish citizen, this Jewish professors and students were unjustly expelled. Um, in, uh, in the train station, they will say, in this train station, people were brought to Auschwitz. I mean, you, there is there are no markers here there are no markers in camp Krami where people were detained in uh, fort bonifacio where people were tortured and detained there are no markers there what you have are malls there's nothing there that says so there has to be you know sort of places of memory where these things happen there should be markers in up where students were 
you know, we're marking where the student, it can't just be one place. You know, I, I'm a strong believer in physical remembrance that everywhere you go, it should be there. Do we have monuments to the victims of martial law, except for Bantayog? None. Instead, you have the film center and the cultural center that reminds you of Marcos. You go around Manila, even here in New York, I go to the Philippine consulate, it reminds me of Imelda. You know, all the capis mm. chandeliers, all that kind of the Melda aesthetic, it's still there. It hasn't changed. And so the ubiquity of the Marcos is we see it signs all around us. You don't see that similar thing about the, the other history, the unwritten, you know, unspoken, unremembered history is not there. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of people have done a lot, but we have not, we have not done enough. You look at our textbooks. Speaking of which, okay, there, there's a lack of physical markers, no? but uh, you know, how about education, no? uh, or especially public school education um, you know, at the lower levels, you know, uh, especially high school, siguro, it's, uh, formative years no? where people kind of start to become aware of society. Um, martial law really isn't, isn't taught. No? Uh, what happened during the, the 1970s and, and uh, 80s, no? I mean, Philippine history is basically Bonifacio Rizal, uh, that era. It's true. I mean, Marcos is treated just like any other president, right? Mm -hmm. And the wording of it is very bland and um, you bet, get better information from Wikipedia than from, than from Philippine textbooks. But you know, that's not, that's not unusual. Even here in the US, the whole history of slavery and the whole history of racism has really been deleted from the textbooks. It's only now that we're seeing a lot more digging into that very dark chapter and of, of US history. And now that's being attacked mm -hmm. by conservatives. You know, the teaching of what they call critical race theory mm -hmm. is now a, a talking point of conservatives. So it's, it's not just us. It's mm -hmm. very hard for people to reckon with the darkness of their past especially when there are strong political forces that um, are fighting uh, truth-telling and the telling of real history. There are very strong political forces in the Philippines, in the U.S. against that. Well, speaking of history and, and your, your lecture, your Cristobal Memorial Lecture, you, you talk a, a lot about uh, history and also your family's uh, history. You, you know, you mentioned your your grandfather, uh, an Ilocano teacher who became a a soldier during World War II, and he was he was killed, no, by the, by the Japanese, no. But you also dwelled on your father, and you talked about him, uh, the, the lawyer, no, Antonio Coronel. Uh, you talked about him in a, in a very honest way, and and you said uh, many smart men like him uh, were drawn to uh, you know, strong men personalities like Marcos. They were they were drawn to Marcos in particular. Uh, your father was also Ilocano, no? but beyond that, what do you think attracted him to Marcos? You know, Marcos is very charming, at least before he was sick. He was very charming. He was a lawyer. He's very clever. So when my father was defending Ver in the Aquino assassination, Fabian Ver, no? he was Fabian Ver who was a, the chief of staff of Marcos, who was accused, the chief person accused of the Aquino assassination, my father would have conversations with Marcos about the law. And Marcos would be listening in apparently to, to, the, to the court hearings and he would be commenting. So they would be discussing legal strategy. 
mm-hmm. and and he thought that's very flattering if you're a lawyer and the president is talking mm-hmm. to you about legal strategy mm-hmm. and marcus was brilliant i mean there is there is no doubt about that i mean marcus junior is not but the father certainly was and he was and if you're an ilocano lawyer there's so much affinity there with him you know orphaned by the war um ferdinand was orphaned by the war Mariano mm-hmm. Marcos was actually killed by mm-hmm. by guerrillas because he was a collaborator, mm-hmm. but that doesn't come out. Everybody thought Mariano Marcos was also against the Japanese, but there was so much similarity in their life story, so that there was like a natural affinity. I mean, for the people of Marcos's generation who had survived the war, Marcos was like a very hopeful figure. And so we we see him as a strong man, but we should also understand his appeal. I mean, just uh, we have to be honest also about him. I'm honest about my father because I want Bong Bong to be honest about his. Um, I cannot attack Bong Bong and his father if I am not similarly transparent about who my father was and what he believed in. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, at the family dining table, uh, you would have breakfast, or your father would have breakfast with uh, clients who were uh, torturers, torturers. No? In, the, in, in the military yeah. <laughs> and tortured military. Uh, like a, a, a woman um, labor uh, or urban poor advocate, no, or organizer, si Trinidad yeah. Herrera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. But you know, the election's not about, or is it? No, it's about Marcos Sr. I mean, Marcos Jr. is the one who's running. So does he embody any of these qualities that attracted uh, people to his father? Uh, or is it simply, I don't know, people just see the father in the son? I mean, the father has been long dead. No, Most of the voters, many of the voters today have no memory of Marcos Sr., uh, except maybe on what they see on YouTube. Or, or, or is that it? Well, you know, all these YouTube videos. There's a deliberate imaging of him, you know, the red, mm-hmm. the red shirt with the mm-hmm. collar, mm-hmm. Um, the pictures of him that look like Marcos, the, the gestures. So he is trying to channel his father, but without the bad things associated with his father. Right. So he's mm-hmm. deliberately playing on the Marcos nostalgia and the Marcos name. So, yes, it's about Marcos because it really is about re- reinstitute. It's really about redeeming the Marcos legacy. That's what this election is about. And having the Marcoses back in power, basically to erase that whole history and to hold them no longer accountable for all the sins of the past. I really see this as an election about Marcos and the resurrection of Marcos. It's really a referendum on the Marcos legacy. So you urged us uh, in your lecture not to normalize the morally extraordinary. uh, you you said you believe Marcos Jr.'s platform is simply to normalize Marcos. No, what, what what did you mean by that? I think if 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 Marcos Jr. is elected, that means uh, everything that Marcos had done in the past: the plunder of the economy up to ten billion dollars, um, the human rights violations, the wars in Mindanao, the pillaging of the country, the the plunging of the country into debt all of that will be forgiven and forgotten. That's, that's normalizing Marcos. That means all of that is okay. That, that means uh, by electing Marcos Jr., we're basically saying we had forgiven and forgotten everything his father did in the past. And normalizing that as okay, as acceptable. Mm. 
um, that that can be done with no attempt at restitution, no attempt at giving back the ill-gotten wealth, no attempt at even acknowledging that bad things happened. This is this is really what bothers me, and that's what's giving me sleepless nights is the <laughs> thought that we're we're actually going to do this. Okay, in this environment, um, you know, how do we get out of our echo chambers? I think the people who read you and listen to you already agree with you and your view of history. So how do we reach those who may still be convinced but are trapped by, you know, algorithms in an endless loop of falsehoods? I think it's really one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. with people we know because I don't think you can do this remotely on social media where there's a premium on conflict, on violence, on on insults, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if we have face-to-face conversations in schools, in churches, in communities, wherever we are, I think that is that is much more effective because this is really granular work. It can mm-hmm. convincing other people, it doesn't happen. And this is why, you know, there are martial law survivors who go around schools and, and there are groups of people just going around and, and explaining because that's that's the only way really for, for this to happen. I mean, social media is still important, but, but I think it's this earnest conversations we need to have if we are to reckon with our, with our history. So we have to get off our screens. <laughs> we have to get off our screens and talk to people. Yeah, and and uh, so the, the pandemic is actually waning at a good time. No, I mean uh, we can actually get out of our homes and and have real world conversations and interactions with 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 people, with real people. No, beyond what we see on our screens. So f- finally, Sheila, is this a good time to be a journalist? Considering you know we've been demonized, there's so much falsehood out there. A lot of people, you know, don't think. Uh, you know, don't believe in our in our mission. But what do you tell your your students? Um, is this a good time to be a journalist? This is a great time to be a journalist because we are in the midst of like world historical change and conflict. You know, the world order is being reconceived. Um, in many countries, there is so much polarization. Our role at this time is to provide clarity, and our role is also to record this moment for the future, so that when people look back they're able to write an accurate history. The situation in the Philippines isn't that bad. I know I know journalists in Burma, in Ukraine, in Russia are suffering much more than we are. There is still a space in which we can report freely and critically, and we should mm-hmm. conserve and expand that space. Yesterday, I was talking to an Afga- a young Afghan journalist who's on a fellowship mm-hmm. over at the Columbia Journalism School. And she had to flee with only a pair of socks, extra pair of underwear, and a set of clothes. That's all she did. She's, she's here now. But she's, she's continuing to report in Afghanistan and, and also recalling all the things she calls herself part of the 9-11 generation because they grew up after 9-11 and the war on terror. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's very important that I tell the story of my generation mm-hmm. because if I don't, who is going to tell it? whose truth is going to prevail if I don't write it. And so it is very important to write it now so that in the future when history is written, there will be an accurate account. People will understand what happened 
when they go to the rubble of history, <laughs> they'll see those little sparks of, of, of truth. You know, that's, that's our role. And I think that's a heroic role. We may not be able to make an impact now, but we will, we will later. I mean, I'm, I'm still reading, let me show you. I'm reading this book about, uh, I don't know if you see it. It's I see about, something in German. Are you an enemy of the people? Yeah, it's enemy of the people. It's a book about uh, the Munich Post, which mm -hmm. wrote about Hitler, about the rise of Hitler. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. we know about the early days of Hitler's rise is because mm -hmm. of the reporting of the Munich Post. So it's, it goes on forever. What we know about the war in Chechnya was because of the courageous reporting of people like Anna Politkovskaya, who was there and spent a lot of time there chronicling it, causing her own death, right, eventually. But th this, this is a historical record we're there forever. All right. Wow. Okay. On that note, thank you. Thank you for that reminder and uh, also all the warnings, no? Thank you, uh, Sheila, for sharing your family history and for connecting the dots uh, for many of us and for teaching journalists to speak truth to power and reminding us all of our mission. Mabuhay ka, Sheila Coronel. Salamat, Howie. The podcast team has tried reaching out for comment from presidential aspirant Bongbong Marcos. He has yet to respond. In his previous interviews, Marcos Jr. continues to assert that there is no evidence of corruption linked to his family. This is despite the fact that the Presidential Commission on Good Government has recovered more than 170 billion pesos worth of the Marcos family's ill-gotten wealth. Meanwhile, Marcos Jr. continues his campaign statements on unification and has sent invitations for presidential debates where he could have the opportunity to expand on his platform. Thank you, Podmates, for listening until the very end of this podcast. Alam nyo na, nakakatalino ang mahabang attention span. This episode was produced by the team of Yu Yanga and Chan Salvador and edited by JR Magtoto with the wonderful people of GMA News and Public Affairs Digital. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Till the next pod, mabuhay kayo at ingat lagi.